Dr. Katrina Fury, a psychiatrist. And I'm Portia Pendleton, a licensed clinical social worker. And And this this is Analyze Scripts, a podcast where two shrinks analyze the depiction of mental health in movies and TV shows. Our hope is that you learn some legit info about mental Mm -hmm. health while feeling like you're chatting with your girlfriends. There is so much misinformation out there and it drives us nuts. And if someday we pay off our student loans or land a sponsorship, like with a lay flat airline or a major beauty brand, even better. So sit back, relax, grab some popcorn and your DSM-5 and enjoy. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Analyze Scripts. Um, Portia and I are super excited to be joined today by Dr. Tobias Wasser, who is an associate professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. Um, He completed all of his psychiatry training at Yale, including the psychiatry residency program and two fellowships in forensic psychiatry and public psychiatry. He currently serves as the Deputy Medical Director for Community and Forensic Psychiatry for Yale New Haven Hospital and the Assistant Chair for Program Development in the Yale Psychiatry Department. He's previously held leadership roles in Yale Psychiatry Residency Program and for five years served as the Chief Medical Officer of Connecticut's State Forensic Hospital. And most importantly, he was my chief resident for a whole day at the the very, very beginning of my intern year. So welcome, Tobias. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, So interestingly, I'm sure you don't remember this, Tobias, but I remember my very first day of psychiatry residency. I was on the inpatient psych unit. You were observing me do, I think, like my very first interview as a resident. Um, And I was interviewing a patient with a psychotic disorder. I don't think I'd ever really interviewed someone with one of those before. Um, And afterwards, you told me something that has stuck with me ever since and I think is really pertinent to this movie. You were telling me, and you're so nice in the way that you would tell me this criticism, (laughs) but it's very kind. Um, You were saying, you know, you did a great job, but, you know, when, when you're listening to someone talk about their delusions, try really hard not to nod as they're talking, you know, it's like a very natural thing to do. Um, But if you're nodding, you're kind of confirming for them, like, yeah, this is true. This is true. Like, what a what a perfect uh, sort of clinical pearl to think about as we talk about Shutter Island today, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you're right that that I don't totally remember saying that to you. (laughs) But I, um, I, I guess, Maybe it'll make you feel better to know you're not the only individual to whom I've given that feedback. <laughs> Good. 
It is a common aspect of uh, people learn how to uh, practice psychiatry and, and mental health. So as you said, I think it's a natural reaction. So clearly it helped you. I'm glad it's. Yeah. But I just like that sort of popped in my mind as I rewatched the movie today, knowing you join us because in this movie, they do this whole like, like weird experiment, right? Um, and so I think before we dive in and really pick your brain on what it's like to be a forensic psychiatrist and what you think about this movie, uh, Portia's going to give us just a really quick rundown of the plot. Mm-hmm. So the movie came out in 2013 by Martin Scorsese, all-star cast, all-star director. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Teddy Daniels, who is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And then we have Chuck played by Mark Ruffalo. Mm -hmm. And so we see these two people kind of heading to this island where there's um, apparently this like mental institution where the criminally insane are being held. Yes. Um, And it opens up with vomiting, which I just, (laughs) you know, we talk about this a lot. I was like, great. another movie. Portia hates vomiting. (laughs) Um, And so they are going to kind of investigate someone who's missing and they Mm -hmm. are, um, State marshals. Um, yep, marshals. And so you kind of see them exploring the island. It looks really um, scary. scary. There's and there's like a... two um, different kind of living arrangements, it seems like. One where more, I would say, like peaceful patients are housed. And then mm-hmm. another one that feels really um, gross and mm-hmm. dirty and mm-hmm. more jail-like. Yeah. Um, and the movie does take place in 1954. So it is like right. post-World um, post War II, which mm-hmm. I think is like interesting with the differences um, in like how we treat uh, mental health. So we kind of see them investigating this crime or this person who's missing as we have some questions of <laughs> Teddy's mental status. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has these migraines. There's some flashbacks to his time during World War II um, at some concentration camps. Really, really traumatic, it seems mm-hmm. like, some experiences that he's had. And then also these kind of flashbacks to this, like, family, mm-hmm. um, but then to this other wife without kids and it's confusing so i was kind of confused watching it at first and then um we see him kind of continuing to investigate and believe that there are these um inhumane like trials going on or clinical trials Mm -hmm. um, or uh like experimentation almost experimentations kind of going on that we see and he doesn't find any and so the movie kind of arcs all of a sudden to where I initially thought, so this was the first time that I saw it, that oh, wow. he was being kind of like pushed into insanity, quote unquote. Mm. Um, he was being given some medications. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden there's this, there's this part where it's like, well, you have, you've been eating the food. Have mm-hmm. you been taking medications from mm-hmm. them? Have you been smoking your own cigarettes? Mm-hmm. And he starts to kind of feel like um, he was poisoned or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden we find out that he is the test subject of this really, really, really immersive, um, I don't want to say well done, but well done. um, Well executed, maybe. Yeah. um, Set up for him in order to help his psychosis or delusions in order to kind of have him kind of come back. Snap out of it. Which is his wife um, killed his three children. And then he killed her. And so he's um, actually he a patient. To make someone, you know, potentially have a, a psychotic break or experience some psychosis. So I will say that I'm probably going to take a little bit of a backseat to this episode. I think the only experience I have with psychosis is like drug induced. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not my forte. I don't think I've ever um, interviewed or come across a patient with non-drug-induced psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the story of the movie. And I mm-hmm. think it leaves off with two questions. Did they trick him? And that was a whole trick to kind of get him to stay there? Mm-hmm. Or was he really a patient? And I Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he was the 67th patient that he was like looking for the whole time. And then at the very end, I felt like the whole premise, once you figured out what was going on, was they were trying to like restore his sanity once and for all with this elaborate hoax in hopes that he could avoid a lobotomy, right? Um, and then at the very end, you see him sort of slip back into his delusional way of thinking and go off to get the lobotomy. And I think actually he knew what he was doing. I think he sort of um, didn't actually slip back into that delusional frame of mind. I think he finally like realized what had happened and didn't want to live with it. Um, so it was really fascinating uh, movie. I, I always love Leonardo DiCaprio, especially with a Boston accent. You know, I'm just like, anytime, anytime. Um, but one thing that hit me like right away was just like, uh, there's like this big, scary mental hospital in the middle of the ocean where you can't get to. And we're going to play this like big, scary music. And there's rocks everywhere. And there's like police everywhere. And like, ah, just like this, ah, you know, it reminded me mm-hmm. of Alcatraz <laughs> in San Francisco, which was just a jail, I believe, um, not a, a forensic psych hospital. But I was just like, oh, my God, just like, yeah, it's like, oh, God, yeah, the mentally ill, we're so scary. You know, it just like really right right away really like knocked you over with um, that intensity. Uh, what did you think, Tobias, about uh, sort of the way they started off? Yeah, so I, I think first, of all, I think you're right about the ending. I saw it after a really extreme form of denial or, or almost like mm-hmm. choosing an extreme form of denial that he once he knew what he had done he didn't want to live with it anymore and so mm. he was choosing surgical intervention to mm-hmm. try to keep that out of his mind um and yeah as far as the depiction of of what the place looks like so i definitely think you're right it played into all of our worst stigmas about right. psychiatric hospitals that it's criminally insane and this scary island in the middle of nowhere and that it has to be surrounded by miles and miles of water to prevent anyone from escaping. And, mm-hmm. and I think also, of course, to your point about this is, you know, post night, this is set in the 1950s. And so it's a very different understanding of what mental illness is at the time in any case. But I'll say as someone who uh, is, Katrina, you mentioned in the sort of brief bio, someone who spent many years running a current forensic hospital. It's a very different experience than how it's been depicted in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the, uh, we often imagine these really horrible, scary places. And I will say there are aspects of it that align with my experience. But uh, for the most part, we've come a long way in the 50 years. If that's what it really was like 70 years ago, we've come a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely agree that it was trying to really, I think it was trying to immerse the, um, viewer experience of being terrified and mm-hmm. I think it succeeded in that. <laughs> yes, it did. So what parts of it sort of matched with your experience working in a modern day forensic hospital? Yeah, so I think part of it is what Portia alluded to with this idea that there might be different parts of the hospital. So that mm-hmm. continues to be true today. So mm-hmm. not all forensic hospitals are like this, but many of them will have what we call different services. So mm-hmm. in Connecticut, for example, the hospital that I was the uh, chief medical officer for for five years, we did have two different services. We had what we called a maximum security service, which mm-hmm. was for patients who are at a higher risk for violence. 
uh, or who may have engaged in more violent behavior before they came to the hospital or currently were engaging in unsafe behaviors. And that is more like a synthesis between a typical hospital or typical psychiatric hospital and a correctional setting. Mm, it's made mm-hmm. of, I mean, at least again, the one in Connecticut, it's made of, the walls are cinder block. Mm. Um, and it's in order to get in, you have to go through multiple layers of uh, security and, and sort of double locking doors, what we call a sally port, mm. like you're entering a prison facility. So mm. there are layers of security to it that are similar and the structure is somewhat similar. When you get on the unit, though, it looks more as opposed to in the movie where people are in jail cells and they're locked up and it really looks like a jail facility. Once you actually get into the physical space where the patients are living, it's more like an inpatient unit. The people have bedrooms, they don't have door, uh, they don't have cells, they don't have uh, bars on the doors. They can enter and exit as they wish. There are group rooms in which therapeutic activities occur. There's a shared dining space, there are televisions. So there are, there are some aspects that are similar, um, but hopefully it's a little bit more humane when you actually get onto the unit. Mm. Uh, and then, and actually in the one in Connecticut is a much older facility. It was built in 1970, so actually not long mm-hmm. after this movie supposedly takes place. And there are, there are a couple of much more modern facilities that have been built, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Missouri, that are really picturesque, very mm. aesthetically pleasing. They really focus on things that are supposed to enhance individual recovery, like access to natural light and big mm. open spaces mm. and all those things. So the more modern facilities have really come a long, long way and they look nicer than some typical psychiatric hospitals, not for forensic patients. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other aspect I was going to say, so there is a second service, again, even in our own hospital, for safer patients, patients who have engaged in less serious violence, but for some reason have engaged in some kind of uh, behavior that got them involved with the criminal justice system and they require psychiatric treatment. And those settings, at least in Connecticut, looks much more like a typical hospital that you'd mm-hmm. expect. And mm-hmm. those patients actually are given grounds privileges. They can mm-hmm. walk the grounds, sort of like we saw in the movie, that they can walk around and they're do that. Are so, they like think, um, handcuffed like we saw in the movie? People would be like in shackles walking around, but like their feet shackled up. Uh, that's a great question. So no, they're not. So mm-hmm. in modern day, but because there's been so much emphasis on patients' rights and mm-hmm. uh, advocacy movements for all patients, not just these kinds of patients. And, and maybe I should just take a step back to define what does it mean to be a forensic patient. So mm. forensic really refers to in mental health or in psychiatry, it's talking about the intersection of psychiatry and the law. So when we talk about forensic hospitals or forensic patients, sort of like in the movie, they are typically places where individuals who've been found not guilty by reason of insanity. So they've committed a crime, they've pled what's anecdotally called, what I'm looking for, colloquially called the insanity defense, meaning that they're saying they're not criminally responsible for their actions because at the time of the crime, they either didn't appreciate that what they were doing was wrong or they couldn't control their behavior because of a mental illness. They're found not guilty by reason of insanity, which is a horrible stigmatizing moniker, but it's still what we call it. And then they're sent for long-term psychiatric treatment in a hospital setting. And then is the... Is the goal, um, we just released an episode um, about the movie Side Effects. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It's it's also Mm -hmm. an older movie. Um, But in that movie, it seemed like the goal was to restore um, the character who was found not guilty by reason of insanity to sanity. um, So then she could go back to them be tried. 
Does that actually happen? Yes, that's a great question. But that actually, it's it's kind of mixing two different topics in forensic psychiatry, mm-hmm. two different populations. So we do have the one group who is what I just described, mm-hmm. who found not guilty by reason of insanity. We have a second group of individuals who are found not competent to stand trial, which ah. is similar, but is different. So being found not competent to stand trial. So for all of us, if we are accused of a crime, we're all presumed or assumed to be competent, meaning to understand what's going on in court. For some individuals with mental illness or cognitive disorders, uh, they're not able or intellectual disabilities. They're not competent as a result of their mm-hmm, incapacities. Mm-hmm. And so if they're not able to understand what's going on in court, they don't know what a judge is, what a lawyer is, or they have delusions that the court is out to get them and they're paranoid about it, or because of an intellectual disability, they're just not able to effectively understand what's happening. Or maybe because of mood instability, they're so upset and get so upset so easily and angry and yelling and screaming, they can't really work with a lawyer, they couldn't mm-hmm. sit through a court hearing. Mm. Those are all reasons somebody might be found not competent to stand in trial. Got it. And, and that's very much like on here and now, at the time you're supposed to show up to court to get what's going on. Got it. Whereas the insanity defense is much more about when you did the thing. Right. The okay. Okay. So for this second group, this not competent group, it would be more like what you were talking about with sideways, where they're gonna they might also come to our hospital and they're gonna be sent there for treatment. And we're gonna try to restore them. So we're gonna try to make them better so that they can go back to court and deal with their charges. Mm-hmm. And that might be through getting medications, group therapies, and just education about the court system. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's an educational deficit. Mm-hmm. And then we try to send them back so they can deal with their charges. The second or the other group we've talked about, the insanity defense folks, we are trying to make them better, mm-hmm. but they're not going to go back and face their charges. They've already been found not guilty and mm-hmm. their their trial is over. And Got so it. now we're just going to re them back to society. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Does Portia, we've been like talking about that for weeks, like with, you know, we, we're, we're discovering and doing this podcast that a lot of the shows we watch and that other people are asking us to cover involve narcissists and psychopaths. And so <laughs> this keeps coming up, you know, <laughs> so that, that's, group. yeah, apparently. Fascinating. Yeah. I think also we see, which I think is an interesting shift in the movie, Dr. Cauley mm-hmm. um, makes a comment that like sanity is not a choice. Mm-hmm. And then also if you treat a patient with respect, you can reach them. So I think that's kind of like the shift into more current times with, mm-hmm. you know, respecting patients and and having them, you know, understand what's happening mm-hmm. and, and having, you know, a, a right to choose maybe different medication trials or therapies and stuff like that. And I think that's great and wonderful. And it seemed like what he was doing at the time was really kind of like shocking and out there. And right. Um, and you even see um, Teddy, the marshal, like being angry. At yeah. First, that right. Some of these patients are being treated well or, you know, they're not just being um, like they're being believed. Right. I thought um, I'm so curious, Tobias, to hear your views about the forensic psychiatrist they depict, who is played by Ben Kingsley, Dr. Cauley. Um, I did write down a couple of quotes that either he said or or that they um, I think he said them that I actually thought were pretty lovely. 
Um, so at one point he was sort of telling Teddy, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, like what they do at Ashcliff. And he said something like, this is the moral fusion between law and order and clinical care. And I thought like, well, that's, that's kind of a lovely description of or definition of forensic psychiatry. And then uh, I, I really appreciated when Dr. Colley would correct um, the marshals when they would refer to the patients as prisoners. And he kept saying, you know, they're patients, they're patients. And, and I think Teddy at one point is like, how can you even treat them like knowing these awful things that they've done? And he said something like, I treat the patients, not their victims. I'm not the one here to judge. And I just thought like, wow, wow. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts about, about his character, Tobias, and, and the depiction of him and, and the other psychiatrists, all of which I'll just point out were old white men? <laughs> which is, is accurate probably for the 50s. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you have picked up on some really lovely quotes and some themes in this that I also align with and noticed as being really interesting. And as you're saying, Portia, at the time, probably were very progressive. And mm-hmm. now I think, I wouldn't say they're mainstream, but I think they really, what's reflected in this is a lot of the tensions that we do see in the practice of modern forensic days, modern day forensic psychiatry that... Even now, working in these facilities, so we've come a long way since the 1950s, and there have been this enormous movement around patients' rights and giving them the right to choose. What does it mean to accept or refuse medication? What abilities do you have to have to be able to do that? Just because you've been committed to a hospital doesn't mean you can be forced to take medications necessarily. Mm-hmm. And and all the things you're saying about in a forensic hospital, about calling them patients, not prisoners, thinking about their illness and their symptoms rather than the criminal behavior they're accused of or been convicted of. And and yet we struggle with this all the time still. So mm-hmm. I'll say working in these facilities, you often find uh, this tension between the kind of how he described the law and order and the clinical care. Yeah. And you hope for that the mental health clinician will be the ones really advocating for the treatment component that they're going to want to think about the person and their illness. Many of these individuals have been horribly traumatized mm. and see an enormous amount of comorbidity in terms of histories of physical, emotional, and sexual trauma in their youth that leads them then to enact this kind of behavior when they're older. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising to any of them. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mm-hmm. And so we try to get our staff, you know, who were demonstrated as like orderlies and this, mm-hmm. uh, or the police officers or security guards, whatever they are, to, to help them understand that these patients are people and that, yes, they may have done something really horrible, but that's not what we're going to define them by. But it's, it's still really a struggle and it really falls on those of us who are providing the care or in leadership roles in these institutions to like keep holding on to that moralistic value and mm-hmm. try to keep advancing things forward. And, and I often found that in these environments, you often see some amount of 
regression by the staff, meaning that they start mm-hmm. to act in kind mm-hmm. of like more primitive and earlier ways because it, it can be an unsafe environment. There is more aggression in these environments than in a typical mental health setting. Mm-hmm. And when people start to feel unsafe, they start to regress into these earlier states of being. And mm-hmm. so you'll see more interest in punishment than maybe clinical care. They want the patients to have consequences when they yeah. do that. Right. Or sometimes they'll refer to them by their crime uh, as opposed to by their name or their diagnosis. They're just a murderer. They're just a rapist, something horrible like that. And so it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to continue to hold the line and to not be drawn into that because mm-hmm. I think it, um, it's, a, it's kind of a natural human proclivity and it, it, it taxes all of us, but it's also our responsibility when you work in these settings to try to keep holding on to that concept. And the role I had running the hospital for the patients... Um, particularly the individuals who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity, they had to have mandatory public hearings every two years in terms to monitor their progress. And, and if there was ever an effort to try to move them from like the hospital to the community, there were, and this happens, every state handles it differently, but every mm. state has some process where either the court or a quasi-judicial body, like in Connecticut, we have this separate board. It's kind of like a a synthesis between a mental health, it's sort of like a mental health parole board, essentially, that monitors mm. these folks as they move through the system to less and less restrictive um, environments. And whenever you have to have these hearings, families will come and they have the opportunity, or they have the opportunity at least to give victim statements, mm. uh, the victim themselves or the family of the victim. And it was heart-wrenching and it was really awful to hear and really, really difficult to, many of them have been horribly traumatized by what happened to them or sure. their family members. And, and as difficult and uncomfortable as it was, it was extremely important, I know for myself and others who work in that environment, to hear that for two reasons. One, because I think you don't, as much as we're focused on the patients and wanting to get them better, I think as opposed to how the movie depicts it, where it's, I don't think about the other things, I just think about this. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we have to at least consider that. I mean, one, mm-hmm. because it affects their risk, you know, their initial behavior, even if they were really ill at the time they committed some horrific act, we know that's the that's the riskiest thing potentially they could do, right? I mean, if they became ill again, if they right. took medicine or they were out of treatment, that could happen again. And so we have to account for that. The second thing is you can become a little too myopic if all you think about is the patient. That mm. There has to be some consideration for the impact of this on the community, both mm-hmm. just as a human and if you're trying to advocate this person returns to the community. And that's probably the biggest reason is if you advocate that this person returns to the community, this is a reflection of what they might experience in the community. The mm. victims will be there, the family of the victims or other victims who have been um, suffered at the hands of other individuals. And so the patient has to be ready to manage that and mm. you have to help the patient to be ready to manage that. And so you can't entirely turn a blind eye to it and just say, oh, that's something that happens out there. Mm-hmm. Because if the goal is to help the patient get back to out there, you want them to be prepared for what that's going to be like. Mm. So. I think it's it's extremely difficult. I don't want to pretend like it's easy, but I think it's really it's a really important part of doing this kind of work. This sounds like a really hard job. Um, it, it's not an easy job. <laughs> it sounds really hard. Like just thinking about not just being, you know, the the psychiatrist for patients like this. Um, I think some would argue these might be like the sickest of the sick. 
Um, but then also managing, you know, like the whole team treating them who all every team member, you know, brings in their own experiences. And so they're also probably getting triggered by different things as we all are right in this line of work. And then thinking about like the community at large, I'm just thinking like, gosh, that sounds like a lot of pressure to be the one, I guess, at the end of the day to decide like, okay, yep, I think you're ready to reintegrate or no, like that just sounds, I don't know if I could do that. (laughs) It sounds really hard. It's really tough. And I think, I mean, you're raising a couple of points. So one is, yeah, the community, I mean, no community wants these individuals in their community. There actually was a New York Times Magazine article back in, I think, either 2017 or 2018, where they interviewed folks who run these types of hospitals all over the country hmm. because they talked about the fact that it's so hard to get patients out of the hospital because yeah. nobody wants nobody wants a former arsonist to be their next door neighbor. Right, right. Really an arsonist with schizophrenia. I mean, doesn't that sound really inviting <laughs> that you want to move next door? Uh, and not to be, I don't want to be overly stigmatized, but I mean, right. that's how people in the community experience this. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of it that you talk about the experience of staff who have been traumatized. And so part of it is, as you are saying, like they may have had trauma in their own lives before mm-hmm. they come into this work that might be triggering when they do this work. Mm-hmm. As much as we, we don't, I don't want to propagate the idea that individuals with mental illness are violent. They're much more likely to be the victims of violence and the perpetrators of violence. But when you have, enclosed environments dedicated for individuals who have been accused of crimes, many of whom engage in violent behavior, there is an increased risk of violence in those environments. And some of these staff members will be become, they will be harmed during the course of their work. And that, of course, can be very traumatizing. And then the final piece is in these environments, the patients tend to stay there for much longer than at a usual hospital. So I mean, a typical, if someone has to go to the psychiatric hospital, they're there maybe seven to 14 days. For our patients, the shortest period of time they're there is usually 60 to 90 days, and the mm. longest is two decades. Wow, so yeah. people will be there for very long periods of time. And to incentivize particularly general healthcare workers to work in these environments, they're usually part of unions that are through the state. They have really good benefits. And so they work there for long periods of time. And so you can only imagine the kinds of relationships and dynamics that evolve over the course of years with employees with their own history of trauma, maybe mm-hmm. aren't the most well-trained in managing personality disorders. It's, right. You know, your psychopaths, your narcissists, your borderline personality disorders. Mm-hmm. And then you've got those individuals living in an enclosed environment for a decade. It, it creates, it's fraught with all sorts of drama and trauma. Drama and trauma. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing we wanted to ask you, Tobias, is are you able to comment at all about like, what are like the common diagnoses you see or like the most common diagnoses you tend to see? Um, because I think just like you said, it's really important to us also that in, in in releasing these podcast episodes that we keep getting the message out there that people with mental illness are so much more likely to be victims of crimes rather than perpetrators of crimes. And yet a lot of these shows depict these like raging psychopathic narcissistic people who are like hurting everyone all around them. Um, so I'm just curious if you're, if you're able to comment on that or if that was something you, you noticed in doing this work. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is very much a generalization this sure. based on data, statistics or anything, but generally you, you tend for the most part to see two kinds of, uh, 
kind of diagnostic profiles. So mm -hmm. I think on the one hand, you tend to see individuals who have some kind of a psychotic and or manic illness. So whether mm -hmm. that's schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder with psychotic features, sometimes they become depressed with psychosis, but mostly it's more in the kind of bipolar and um, psychotic reign. Mm -hmm. And their illness is untreated, either mm -hmm. it's been unrecognized or it has been, but they've been off medications for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And because of their severe symptoms, their severe mood and psychotic symptoms, they develop either delusional beliefs or they hear voices and tell them to do violent things. And then they end up engaging in some kind of risky or violent behavior, whether that's directly being harmful, physical assault, sexual assault, uh, setting a fire, something of that nature. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one large diagnostic group we tend to see. Mm -hmm. The, the second tends to be uh, much more, actually, unfortunately, you said you don't have experience with this, but it tends to actually be probably people you might have been more likely to see, which are individuals who have severe personality disorders mm -hmm. and then may or may not develop some, they're usually using substances mm -hmm. and may or may not develop a substance-induced psychosis. So mm -hmm. uh, they're, you know, typically, as I was saying, really people with some kind of antisocial personality disorder, which means that they disregard the rights of others, they mm -hmm. don't care about rules, they're really only out for themselves. They usually have a heavy dose of narcissism. Mm -hmm. And then you see a fair number of, in of individuals with borderline personality disorders with this relationship instability and all sorts of other things. You add some substances on top of that, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, opiates, whatever it might be. And then sometimes they start to develop psychosis mm -hmm. or, ex or extreme mood instability. And with that group, so with the first group we talked about, who you know has a more classic psychotic manic illness, they actually tend to do much better because mm. once they get to the hospital, they get treatment. We know how to treat that group. Right, of right. Medicines we have that are tried and true, therapies we have that are tried and true, and they actually tend to get out of the hospital sooner if they're willing to kind of go along with the treatment program. Mm -hmm. The second group is enormously difficult to treat. And, yeah. and as you guys well know, like we don't have, we certainly don't have medicines. Because uh, usually what happens is once they're in the hospital, they're not using illicit substances. So that psychotic or manic illness dissipates. Mm -hmm. And all we're left with is the personality disorder. And we don't Fun. have medicines to treat it. Our therapies are intermittently or you know, variably effective, depending on particularly, we don't really have much for antisocial. Right. We're a little better with borderline antisocial. But then they're also in these contained environments, which are full of law and order, just like described in the movie. And, you know, these individuals don't tend to... They don't like it. Lots of rules and law. <laughs> Being and told what to and, do. And, and long-term relationships with either their peers or mm. staff who keep showing up every single day. Um, so those, those individuals are really challenging for the staff, and they're really challenging to reintegrate into the environment. Mm. Do you come across a fair amount of malingering? So you do, um, where you tend to see more malingering. I mean, so you, you tend to see a lot of malingering in those, not a lot, I should say. We see more, for the most part, there is not a lot of malingering, but we do see it probably more than other environments. And when we tend to see it, it tends to be in those individuals who, not the insanity defense folks, but those people who are found not competent to stand trial. Mm. So in, every, again, every state is different, but in most states, there's some the legal regulations are essentially that if you're not competent to stand trial, you cannot be tried for your crime. Hmm. So because the courts place this emphasis on 
human dignity, essentially. And so the idea is if you're not mentally sound, how can we try you for a crime if you don't understand what's going on? Right. You can't work effectively to a lawyer. So it depends on the state. But if you're not able to be competent or restored to your competence, you may never face your charges. And so mm-hmm. how that's dealt with is different. You may end up in a psychiatric hospital. You may not. But most of those people won't face their crime. And so there's a number of individuals, whether their crimes are significant or more minor, who essentially think, can I fake crazy? Can I fake crazy in order to get out of facing my crime and dealing with the consequences? So we do see that more than most states. And we actually, uh, most of hospitals like this employ psychologists who can do psychological testing and screen for malingering Hmm. as a way of trying to help us subsidize that out. So that's a big part of the assessment we do, especially if we suspect that somebody might be faking it more than the, than the, might be faking it, period. When you're getting ready to discharge patients from these forensic hospitals, are there like specific community like clinics or, or places that you sort of go to who can sort of, do you get to collaborate with them after the patient leaves to sort of make sure they're okay or their check-ins or if they start to unravel, they can sort of quickly come back into treatment or is that just like a fantasy I'm creating in my head? No, you're not far off. So again, in, in my, my experience is here in the state of Connecticut. So here we tend to work with our state mental health department and almost all the patients receive treatment at community mental health centers that are mm. part of the state mental health system. Okay, And, and so they work with those folks. And because it's so hard to get them to the community, there are usually prolonged transition periods where they're meeting their community clinicians while they're still at the hospital. They're beginning oh, work. Good. They have transitional visits. If they're going to be in some kind of, they're almost always living in some kind of supervised setting, whether mm-hmm. it's a supervised apartment or a group home or something. And so they do transitional visits before they actually leave the hospital. And they, they may spend months, maybe even up to a year, just engage in a transition process before they actually go and leave the hospital to mm. leave the community. And then usually in most states, there's some mechanism for bringing them back to the hospital if, they need uh, to. if they're not doing well. So okay. there's, there's a concept called conditional release, yes. which is the idea that they can be released to the hospital, but it's conditional on their safety, good behavior, or whatever you want to say. And it can be revoked. That's why it's conditional if some there's some safety-related concern mm. and they can be brought back to the hospital. I see. I see. Okay. Wouldn't this be nice for like almost everyone needing inpatient psychiatric care to just have more time getting treatment and then have this nice transition period? And it just seems like such a better model overall. And I wonder if that's what it used to be like, you know, back in the day where people would, you know, not just get two days of of treatment and then be discharged. (laughs) I think in a world that's less driven by insurance reimbursement, this probably was, I don't know that quite this extreme, but I Mm -hmm. imagine this was before the model. And I do think as so much of our healthcare is now decided by what will be paid for and not paid for, we've really gotten away from this. And I I think not everybody needs this, but there are many individuals for whom they could benefit from this kind of care. And part of what's talked about in, public entities, uh, state, county uh, funded institutions is this idea that kind of like a, the allocation of resources really depends on what the law requires you to do. And so there's always a limited fund of resources in any state, county, whatever. And so where you shift your resources is what's required. So like, for example, Connecticut is not one of them, but most states have some form of involuntary outpatient commitment for individuals who mm. need to be 
you know, they're chronically ill, chronically dangerous, and they want something like what you're describing, which is a way to bring them into the hospital quickly if they're not doing well in the community. I think New York has something like that, right? Where like if you're not complying with your injectable antipsychotic or something. Exactly. Yeah. So New York, actually 46 of the 50 states have laws like this. Um, but New York was one of the first, and it's called Kendra's Law. North Carolina was an early adopter of this as well. They've done the most research on it. Uh, and, and there's some evidence that it works, but the major concerns with laws like this, one is that it tends to be overly representative of, of minoritized individuals, mm. so people who are black, brown, Hispanic, uh, from low socioeconomic status, that we tend to see more of those individuals. And so there's a significant concern that's been raised that there are this, these ideas are built on racist practices yeah. and structures. And so it's inappropriately in those populations too often. Mm. The second concern that's often raised, which I think is where I was going before, was that because there's a limited pot or pool of resources, when you construct laws like what I'm describing for involuntary outpatient commitment, it requires the public entity to give the resources to those individuals, usually at the loss of the resources for other individuals who aren't Mm. engaging in those same behaviors, but might equally benefit from them because you're going to kind of shift your focus to whatever you have to do and whatever Mm. you don't have to do, you're less likely to do. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I also feel like that could be like really used against patients in an icky way. Uh, like it feels very, like I, it's so hard. I, it's like, I understand it, but then it just feels like it could be really coercive. Yeah. It's not the same, but it's a little similar to when you have patients, if you're caring for individuals who are on like probation mm-hmm. and then there's this pull that, like, well, you know, your, your probation officer is not going to like it. If you don't show mm-hmm. up, I'm going to call them. I think, Again, I think it's like this well-intended effort to try to keep the person engaged in treatment and engaged in using the interventions that you think will keep them safe and mm-hmm. well and out of trouble. But it's really manipulative. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of co-opting the purpose of treatment, which ought to be for treatment. And we ought to be giving people a choice. And if they want to participate, great. And if they don't, they right. don't. They may have consequences for those choices, but it's not our responsibility as mental health providers to be enacting those consequences. And that's often the challenge that people find themselves in, that they get somehow they get drawn into that in a well-intended mm-hmm. but kind of inappropriately administered way. Yeah, and I want like like motivational interviewing gone like wrong. Or it's like you're <laughs> helping them explore, you know, like the potential consequences and like what that might be like versus I'm going to call them myself. <laughs> It like reminds me when I threaten to call Santa Claus on my children when they won't just get dressed in the morning. (laughs) So Tobias, do you have any criticisms about this movie and the way anything was portrayed? Or I guess on the flip side, did they get anything like really right that you really liked? Um, I... You know, I found myself really struggling with the ending when you find out that this whole thing has been kind of an elaborate right? and an effort to lean into the delusions. And, right. um, you know, I think back to your, your anecdote, there was this part of me that thinks, <laughs> well, no, you don't align. With right. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I learned this my very first day of training. Yeah, and, and then you don't want to trick your patients. Right. You're not, you know, like that's that's not a way of engendering trust and all these things. And then there was this other part of me that thought like, 
you know, this is really interesting. <laughs> like, would this work? Like, is there any chance that trying to align with the patient in some way could be effective? And like, I think I reached a conclusion. No, I don't think so. I think still, like, <laughs> I don't think we want to. You know, it's it's a it's a tightrope walk with the as as we probably talked about that fateful day. Like, I think you want to help the patient feel supported mm-hmm. without reinforcing that the beliefs that you think are symptoms of an illness are actually happening. Right. And so, I, I think that it wasn't surprising to me. I guess given that this was supposed to be such a novel progressive treatment model, that uh, this they would try to enact this on Shutter Island, but. I uh, I found myself troubled by it ultimately. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it was his psychiatrist um, who was like the other marshal, right? Like Mark Ruffalo's character. Like for a while, I kept thinking like, was Mark Ruffalo like um, a hallucination? Was that his like part of his mind that was still sane in some ways? And then when it comes out that that's actually the psychiatrist they all said was on vacation, I was like, ooh, Oh, like, how do you do that? Like, how's he ever going to trust you again? Yeah. What did you think about um, when they were all having their scotch at the end of their night, you know, like in their big fancy velvet chairs and twirling their mustaches and that one... Psychiatrist kept saying, I feel like I want to use this in social conversation somehow. He kept looking at Teddy and going, you have... You have great defense mechanisms. Do you remember that? <laughs> Just being like, wow, these are great defense. But it was like an underhanded comment, you know? I don't know. Was that not part of your training? No, I missed that part. I must have been on maternity leave. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was so uh, stereotypical of psychiatrists. And I know. Maybe, who knows? Maybe that is what really happened in the 50s. But uh, it was just this kind of idea of the old boys club and let's sit around and be very um, sophisticated, our deep thoughts and talk about our analytic theory. Right. And judge and like analyze everyone. Right. Like, I feel like I think we all probably get this in social situations. Like, you know, when you're just like trying to make friends or whatever <laughs> and people hear you're a psychiatrist and everyone gets so nervous and they're like, oh, are you analyzing me now? Um, but I think like movies like this sort of perpetuate that when these people are analyzing everyone so quickly. Um, one thing that I wanted to touch on um, was Michelle Williams's character. Um, I forget her name, but she was basically um, Teddy Daniels's wife. And she did end up, it seems like, well, she did end up killing their three children. Um, and I, I just wanted to bring it up because it reminds me of postpartum psychosis, which has been in the news lately. Um, and as a reproductive psychiatrist, um, anytime I can talk about this and sort of just get some info out there I like to um, because it is the the most severe complication of childbirth. Um, I mean, mental health uh, complications like depression, anxiety, OCD are the most common complication of childbirth beyond any physical uh, complication. And then, you know, postpartum psychosis is the most severe and also the most rare. Um, and if you develop postpartum depression or anxiety, that does not increase your risk for having postpartum psychosis. These are two separate disease pathways. So I, I see a lot of women in my practice who have had postpartum depression or anxiety, especially lately, I think, with what's being said in the news, who get really scared that if they want to have a baby, um, does that mean that they could lose their mind, so to speak? Um, so this condition occurs in one to two out of every thousand births. So again, super rare. 
about 40% of women have the baby blues after delivering a baby. That's just where you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster and it's awful, but it's totally normal. Um, and then about 10 to 15% develop um, postpartum depression, anxiety, OCD. Um, and then again, one to two out of a thousand. I, I can't do that fraction in my head, but very rare to get postpartum psychosis. Um, I don't, again, I feel like I don't think that's what this character was experiencing because their children look too old. You know, they, they, I don't think there was a, a baby involved. Usually postpartum psychosis, um, develops in hours to weeks after delivery. Um, so that first like two to four weeks is really critical to, to be monitoring someone. Um, a lot of times women who develop this condition, you know, you'll have symptoms of hallucinations, um, hearing or seeing things that aren't there, delusional lines of thinking that aren't in line with, you, you know, the, broader cultural beliefs that you're growing up in. Um, and a lot of times, unfortunately, these delusional thoughts are directed toward the baby. You know, you think like the baby's possessed by a demon. The only way of helping them is by killing them, for example, something like that. Um, so the rates of suicide are in infanticide are really high, sadly. I think there's like a 4% risk of suicide um, and uh, uh, around the same for infanticide. Um, and that's incredibly sad. Um in this movie, it seems like the children were older. So again, postpartum psychosis would develop really early or up to a year. A lot of times women with this condition end up having an underlying bipolar disorder. Um, so again, if you have a history of bipolar disorder, you really want to be monitored carefully. Again, it, it's still rare, but it could happen. Um, but I, I feel like if I remember correctly in the movie, the, the kids were older. So it makes me wonder if the, if the mom had like depression with psychotic features or a personality disorder. We don't really know. We don't really get to know anything about her, but I, I couldn't watch it this time. I had to fast forward uh, through those scenes near the end. It was like way, way too much for me to watch. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. They they had said in the movie and, you know, using their words at the time um, that his wife was insane and um, a manic depressive mm. with suicidal tendencies was how they described her to him when he was kind of coming out of right, right. Right. So maybe she had some kind of bipolar disorder or, or schizoaffective disorder or something. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, I was just like reflecting on, you know, his his trauma in the war and then coming mm. home and kind of finding his children deceased. Ugh. And then his wife kind of really like um, flippant about it. Yeah. And I think like that could make a lot of people react the way he did with, you know, killing her. Uh, like in that moment, you know, emotions are so high, but I think, cause I was thinking it's like, why did he end up here? And and I don't, yeah. I might be way off here. I don't know at all. Um, he was there because not because of the crime of killing his wife, but because of his then like delusion after, um, I feel like you could kill someone and like go, you go to jail hmm. versus, you know, like a forensic hospital that, um, forensic like maybe he was found not guilty by reason of insanity because yeah. they were saying, so you know, maybe to have happened. I'm assuming then for him to end up on that island versus like a jail. Right, right. No, I think you're right. Um, and I think I wrote down um, when you know the the team kept talking about Rachel Solano, the brunette woman who allegedly went missing. Um, I felt like if you rewatched it, you could hear their thoughts about Teddy. Right. Like as they're all part of this big 
like hoax i think they're actually like talking to teddy and they said something about how like the greatest obstacle to recovery is the inability to face what she's done and i feel like that was him and i think like you said earlier tobias it really speaks to like is he delusional or an extreme denial you know and and we kind of saw that um that foundation laid i thought with all the flashbacks to war and that he clearly had PTSD, looks like he developed an alcohol use disorder. Um, and then this happened. Like, why, why wouldn't he still be using his, you know, excellent defense mechanisms um, to, to stay in this world of denial? Is there anything else you want to mention before we ask you your thoughts about some of our other favorite psychopaths? <laughs> no, I hate you guys at all. I welcome your psychopaths. <laughs> So you have seen the show you, right? At least some of it. Yes, I've seen the first couple of seasons. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm so jealous whenever I meet someone who isn't caught up because it's so good. And like season <laughs> three and four are so good. Um, so we're dying to know your thoughts about Joe Goldberg. Yeah, so Joe is such a, I mean, I've, and I've heard some of you guys' discussions about this, about the episode, the seasons I have seen that I, um, he is such an interesting sociopath because he's got this level of like compassion in him that you just don't typically see. And uh, it's confusing. I mean, like his relationship, like I'm going to. Like with Paco, the little boy. Exactly. The neighbor boy. Clearly there's some projection identification there. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are just ways in which he clearly connects exactly in a way that you don't typically see it makes it almost feel not well obviously not real but i in my experience working with individuals with antisocial personality disorder and even the ones who would be identified as sociopaths like i've never come across somebody like that before um you tend to see you know much more callousness Mm -hmm. much more narcissism self-directed interest and he clearly has plenty of callousness and self-directed interest and um (laughs) erotomanic fantasies and all mm-hmm. sorts of other things. But I, I think that's the part to me that's most notable because it humanizes the character in a right. way that like you almost root for him. And right. How many sociopathic. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, what do you think about Logan Roy? Do you watch Succession? Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I'm just thinking about this in anticipation of today. And I guess... <laughs> Are you guys convinced that he's a sociopath or a psychopath? I I, I think he's an extreme narcissist and yes, he clearly yeah. doesn't care about other people. I don't know that he purposely tries to harm me. To me, I view his um, character pathology as all being about himself and a way of fulfilling his own needs, seeing himself as more important than anybody else. I don't see him necessarily as like... I guess he doesn't care about the rules, but it just all seems so self-serving. So maybe I'm, I'm drawing the lines of distinctions that don't exist, but I don't know what you guys think. I still think he's very like a malignant narcissist. However, I could I could maybe be convinced that this was like a very intense, like complex PTSD um, and developments of like putting his own needs first to survive, like in a trauma-informed kind of way based on the way he was like brought up, like he doesn't know any better. Um, but then he just does stuff to the kid, to his kids who are adults, but I always call them kids. 
um, that just feels so icky and like to his grandson mm. and like maybe he's going to poison them or not where then I'm just like, ugh, ugh. Yeah, that's fair. Poisoning of children that's usually not uh, cool. So, it's usually not cool. Yeah, I can see you. What do you think but about then is that also mm. like learned? I mean, right. I don't know. Like this is how, you know, he was hit or like, you know, like this is how you make a man or this is how you make someone who's like self-sufficient or, and I, cause Strong. I think views um, at times like Kendall and um, specifically it feels like Kendall's like really like soft. Right. And, like not hard enough, not like a killer. Um, and I, I don't know. It's like almost his disappointment in that because he is, but it's like he was raised that way. I don't know. I think it, I think it is confusing. I mean, a lot of trauma always there seems mm-hmm. to be, but like, does he love, like, does he feel good when he hurts them because he right. hurts them or does he not think about it or does he feel like he's helping them? Like, I, I don't know. Right. I saw. I I think into that, and I guess I've seen it more of as maybe an adaptive behavior. You know, I Mm -hmm. think that based on the difficult life experiences that we learned recently that he had in his upbringing, the challenges he had to overcome. I think both he literally had to overcome a lot, and it seemed like there's this learned aspect that uh, espousing a machado and a machismo, like this is the way that you're big and you're tough, and you got to get through life to get over these things, and he does some horrible things, but usually it's to achieve some personal self-serving end is Mm -hmm. usually the reason. Not because he's like getting off on hurting someone else or. Yeah. I don't, I mean, again, I don't pretend to fully understand Logan Roy, but it doesn't seem like he hurts for the sake of hurting. Mm -hmm. He seems to hurt as a means to the end of his own success and survival. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. What do you think about Tom? He's like slimy and slurry yes. and will do whatever he has to do to anybody in order to get to that ultimate goal. Uh, and it's hard to know. He probably, it's probably born that way, whatever, but it's, it does seem like it stems differently from this like deep seated insecurity about his upbringing and always wanting something mm-hmm. grand and great and wanting to feel grand and great. And it seems like he hopes that if he can be in the presence of greatness, then mm-hmm. he will be great and then he will ascend to greatness and he'll finally, basically finally convince mommy to love him. I had the wool over my eyes for him until recently. That's okay, he, Portia. You, know, he, you have a pure he heart. Me. You have a pure heart. You gotta watch out. People like him will get you like for real. Thank you so much, Tobias. This is super helpful. Um, so thanks for listening to another episode of Analyze Scripts. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Analyze Scripts. You can find us on TikTok at Analyze Scripts Podcast. Um, and stay tuned for our next episode, and we'll see you next Monday. Bye. Bye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. This podcast and its contents are a copyright of Analyzed Scripts, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited. 
Unless you want to share it with your friends and rate, review, and subscribe. That's fine. All stories and characters discussed are fictional in nature. No identification with actual persons, living or deceased, places, buildings, or products is intended or should be inferred. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The podcast and its contents do not constitute professional, mental health, or medical advice. Listeners might consider consulting a mental health provider if they need assistance with any mental health problems or concerns. As always, please call 911 or go directly to your nearest emergency room for any psychiatric emergencies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.